you want something terse. You don't want something verbose because it's just one line, right? So the REPL is good. You get to throw away your code. It's not about like maintenance or anything. It's just about the result. And that's part of exploratory programming. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today we have a super exciting guest to interview. But before we do that, we're going to go around and do brief introductions. I'll throw it to Bob, then we'll go to Adam, and then we'll come back to me. I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J enthusiast, and I'm working on the J Wiki, and I'm enjoying my time with J. Adam Botevsky, full-time APL programmer, though I don't get around to doing so much programming, busy with, yeah, wikis and educational materials and so on. And I'm your host, Connor, a non-professional array language and combinator enthusiast at large. I program in C++ day-to-day. And yeah, super excited about our guest today because uh, she is a fellow polyglot, probably even more so than I am. So uh, before we get to introducing her, uh, I think we're going to have one announcement from Bob, one announcement from Adam, and then a short announcement from myself. And then we will uh, hop into introducing our guest. Just this past weekend, the new J uh, Beta dropped J904. So I think it may be in beta for a while. Uh, these often are often they end up maturing around December and then the new version comes out. That's what happened with 903. The neat thing about 904 is it introduces concurrency. And so there are all sorts of things you can do now or are, are going to be attempted to do. It's right in the, in the midst of development. If you are interested in con- 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 concurrency, this is a great time to get involved because they literally are building it and getting ideas from people and trying to put things together. So uh, any expertise is welcome in the J environment. And I have good news. Uh, so for years, um, very valuable, interesting APL papers and uh, and other array programming papers have been stuck behind uh, the Association for Computing Machinery, ACM's paywall. And they've just decided to open up everything from the first 50 years of ACM history to be completely free. So that basically means all those interesting papers are now available. Many of them are linked from, say, the APL wiki. Yeah, that's super exciting because I most of the papers that I read, they date all the way back into the 20s, 30s, 40s. Or actually, that might not even be ACM then. So, well... Uh, who knows? Because that's definitely more than 50 years ago. But definitely a lot of the J and APL papers are going to be available now um, if they weren't already av- available on the J software site. So, um, yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, my short announcement is, I think I announced this maybe two or three episodes ago. There's a, a new sort of um, online editor or interactive REPL for BQM. And um, there's been some huge enhancements to it. Uh, and it's just getting better and better and better. Um, previously, I think when you were defining functions and then calling that on uh, arrays, it would say, oh, it wouldn't display the result because they said side effects were involved. But now it shows the results. It's like halfway in between uh, an editor and a REPL, and they've got light and dark mode. They've got different fonts. They've got different VMs. It's it's like crazy awesome. So once again, I think Andre Pop is the individual that's primarily working on that. So huge kudos to him. And we'll have a link in the show notes. And also, we'll probably link the try APL for APL and uh, the J 
uh, playground, I think is what they're calling it as well. Because, yeah, all really easy ways to sort of step into the array language uh, world. And, and not to jump in on your announcement, but the J Playground actually now has plot and view mat as well. So you can actually plot things on the screen. Uh, so it's growing as well really quick. So all these things are kind of taking off. It's really neat. Yeah. In the future, no one is even going to be developing on their desktop. If you look at what GitHub and Microsoft are doing, you just hit, what is it, shift dot, and then you, you're you in like VS Code online mode. Um, so yeah, pretty exciting stuff. Um, but with all those announcements and introductions out of the way, uh, let's get to the most important one of them all. Today we have a special guest, uh, Vanessa McHale. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, she is a polyglot programmer and also a former math major. Um, she has developed and has a ton of different projects on her website um, I think primarily you develop in Haskell, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but also Futhark, J, ATS, Idris, a language I've never even heard of called Edgeson or Egeson. I'm sure we've upset, you know, maybe one or two of our listeners that's actually heard of it before. Um, and so I'll, I'll stop with the introduction there, maybe throw it over to you and uh, tell us a bit more about yourself and how you, um, you know, got to the point where you're developing and not just a plethora of languages, but also, you know, J and Idris, these are a, a lot less mainstream than, you, you know, a lot of people have experience in Python and Java. So yeah, super uh, curious to hear your story and how you ended up in these different, you know, sort of, I won't say esoteric languages, but just less mainstream languages for sure. Um, I mean, I've been doing, I guess, Haskell for five years professionally. So I was initially attracted to it because it was sort of interesting and obscure. Um, I think the Haskell world is, I don't know if it's like cooling off, but it's definitely gone more mainstream recently. So I've been, you know, if Haskell is your job language, then you've got to do something else for your, I guess, hobby language. Um, been doing some ATS, some Fuzark, J, I think those are the big ones. Um, Fuzark is also an array language. It's very much in the like ML uh, Haskell side of things. ATS is like very hard to explain. It's very difficult, um, sort of like C and ML crossover, uh, academic language, definitely a lot of fun. Uh, got into J, I guess. There was like some Chris Double presentation about APL. Um, I'd initially, I guess, brushed it off, but going back, just seeing, I guess, how different it is, um, used it for some data science stuff. I mean, I guess I'm excited about the sort of like exploratory programming there. Um, I think a little bit better than Python and definitely cooler. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of good material on it, honestly, which is big uh, help. So do you mind telling us how, how like, because I actually didn't really, I think maybe the first time I ever heard about Haskell was about was about two or three years into my career after graduating and someone, I think someone mentioned at work that I might like the Arch uh, Linux operating flavor because you need to know a little bit of Haskell to install it. That was the first time I'd ever heard it mentioned. And then it wasn't until like another three or four years later that I'd sort of going, I went outside the world of C++ and then someone said, oh, you should maybe pick up like a functional language like Haskell. And then I said, oh, I think I've heard of that before. Like, so, but it, it sounds like you came across it pretty early. Did that c come from studying or school or? I don't know. I think I've stumbled upon it online. Um, I guess this would have been like 2015 or so. So I was in the middle of school and 
part of what got me into it was the Accelerate Library, which is like incidentally an array library targeting the GPU. So there's a lot of just like cool functional and compilers stuff written in Haskell. Um, and I didn't quite realize how big it would get. I think among the choices like Haskell versus OCaml, it ends up being that Haskell ends up like, I don't know if it's like the default functional programming choice, which is a little strange and shocking, but lots of good concurrency stuff, lots of like good compiler stuff you can learn from there. So I've been, um, you know, working at it for five years. And when you, when you, when you first stumbled across it, did you have, cause you, if you've listened to any functional programming podcasts or the rhetoric around a lot of people, they, they discover Haskell and then they say, oh, this is not for me. It's way too difficult. What was your experience like first coming to Haskell and especially like Accelerate is a, um, I'm not sure. I actually haven't played around with it, but it was like a research, uh, library that I actually think some folks at NVIDIA worked at. Um, so that's, that's some advanced stuff that you were <laughs> dabbling in. Like, it's not like you were doing the hello world. You went straight, straight for the, uh, the, you know, fun stuff. You know, I think the, the accelerate library had like all the hard stuff, I guess part of what is cool with Haskell is like being able to do not the hard stuff, but like use accelerate, you could write the sum of an array and you can write it on your GPU. And I mean, I didn't know how to write CUDA or anything at the time. I still don't, but, um, you know, you can en encapsulate a whole bunch of that. I mean, in terms of the difficulty, I think, I don't know. I just stuck with it. I do like difficult, challenging things. I think over time I've appreciated that like the Haskell way is almost always the correct way. Um, I didn't have the perspective initially, but, um, I don't know, I guess it just partly good luck. It did work out. So. And would you say the same thing about OCaml? It sounds like you have a little bit of experience with uh, OCaml as well, or is it something specifically about Haskell and the laziness that you prefer? I don't know about OCaml. I mean, my impression is that OCaml is good. Um, and then like OCaml is strict and Haskell is lazy and Haskell is very different. Um, I think day-to-day -day people don't always use laziness that much, but it ends up being, I mean, it's, it's definitely very subtle. And so it sounds like, and up, up until that point when you had discovered Haskell, what programming languages had you had familiar with or familiarity with? Like, is it just the standard stuff or was Haskell literally the first language you stumbled onto? I think it was like from school, there was like TI basic and then they learned, learned like Scheme, Java. Um, trying to think what else. I think, there, oh yeah, Python, just like for scientific computing. Um, so Haskell was like, okay, well, I guess this is like better than Python. And, you know, initially it was quite irritating, but over time, you know, I appreciated it. And where did you go? So after, you know, that's been, I guess, uh, since 2015, since you first stumbled on it, at what point did you started, you know, is it once you got the taste for Haskell, then you started exploring what other kind of weird, you know, less mainstream languages are there? And, you know, what was your journey from there to, to Futhark and J and ATS and all these other languages? From Haskell to, I guess, Idris was like, sort of a natural step. It's like, if you like obscure things, this is the even more obscure one. And Fuzark is written in Haskell, the compiler is written in Haskell. Idris, the compiler was written in Haskell. So that was a pretty like natural um, branching off point, I guess. Uh, Fuzark, I think it has more capability than like Accelerate, for instance, it just generates faster code. So that was sort of crazy to see, but a good thing for sure. 
So what can you tell us about? Because I, I know um, I've, I've spoken with Trolls Henriksen, the individual that um, created the language and is the main contributor. If you look at the GitHub insights, for sure. Um, but I actually haven't programmed any Futhark code. Is it very similar to Haskell or what, what's the differences between uh, the Futhark language and Haskell? I guess from Haskell, it's like Futhark is a proper OCaml. So like the way you have abstraction is like modules and instantiating modules. I'd say it's like, it's very complementary to J. So like Futhark runs on the GPU and then J is like this very good exploratory language. I don't think Fuzark is just not as strong when it comes to like exploratory programming. There's various things that make it like, you know, it has to be delicate. It has to be planned out. Um, but then on the other hand, J doesn't run on the GPU. It runs on the CPU. So oh, it's very different. Um, a lot of the time they use like the same uh, combinators or methods, right? Like there's basically one way to summon array. Right. If you have in J, it's like you have the uh, dyad and the uh, adverb, right? And you combine them. In Fuzark, there's like a reduce combinator of some sort, and you reduce with the addition function. So you end up doing a lot of the same things, which I think is pretty interesting, just in terms of like the folds, the maps. Um, I guess in J, that's like dyadic reductions using adverbs or the, um, what is it? It's the quote conjunction, I think. Bob's our resident expert on uh, J. So, oh, yeah? Um, well, yeah. So the quote conjunction, you're talking about the um, the gerund, the, the um, oh, I'm trying to think of evoke. Is that the one? Oh, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so what it does is it takes a series of gerunds and then you can use evoke to activate them and make them run like their verbs. One of the things I think is kind of interesting, though, is, is uh, Futark is compiled, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and J is uh, interpreted. Mm -hmm. what, I mean, I'm guessing that J gets to call a compiled language. That works just, that's not a big deal. But is, is the, are, there, are there issues between those two boundaries? Um, I mean, I think the big thing, from what I understand, was like J and array implementations is like, you could do reference counting. So there's like a different implementation if it's like an in-place modification versus um, like copying, but you write the same function and then the interpreter does the work. I think with compiled languages, I don't think there's anything like that, uh, at least not now. So I think that that's definitely uh, one of the things that makes J and other things easier. It's nice to like, be able to run reasonably fast without, uh, I guess, putting in so much effort every time. Yeah, that's something that Henry's done a lot of work on, is we usually refer to it as special code. So if you know those little idioms, those combinations, things run very smooth and very quickly and use much less space because he's he's doing all that behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes this whole concurrency thing kind of interesting because suddenly he's delving into... I guess potentially using GPUs, and actually in the last uh, months, Jay has brought brought in uh, ArrayFire, right? So you can actually run ArrayFire from Jay. So that's sort of they're all nudging into the GPU, and it's right, interesting right. to see how it all works. I'm interested to, to hear more too, because um, I've I've really tried to find an articulation for why it is mm -hmm. what what is it about. Um, J and other array languages that 
like you said, it um, it leads to a more sort of exploratory mm-hmm. feel slash like the flexibility of it. Is it, I you know, sometimes right. I think it's the dynamic typing and then I'm like, well, I don't even really use the dynamic typing. And other times it's like, well, it's the REPL. And I was like, well, you know, there's other languages like Schemes and Racket and Lisps. They have REPLs and it doesn't have the same. And, and then some of them are statically typed. You know, most array languages are, uh, or did I already said that? Yeah, dynamic typing. And I just... I'm not sure. Do you have thoughts on what is it that makes, um, you know, Jay versus Futhark or Haskell, you know, what lends it to being more of an exploratory kind of playful experience? I mean, I think honestly, one of the things is like just it's shorter to type things like you can write a one liner and it does basically what you want. Um, I think having a plotting library is good. Haskell doesn't. Um, Futhark, like the way it does polymorphism. Um, in the OCaml way, it's a little heavier. So like you need to instantiate it for each type. If you're in Haskell or J, it's like just you can type in one plus two, you can type in 1.0 plus 2.0, and it'll work either way. Um, so I don't know if the dynamic types are all of it. Um, I do think like the, um, I don't know if it's the rank conjunction, like the double quotes for the number. I think that's a pretty big one that like Haskell doesn't have, Fuzark doesn't have. I don't think anyone's gotten around to adding that. I don't know what the like technical PLT theory is, but it does seem pretty different. Um, maybe rank has something to do with that. What does uh, Futark use instead of rank if you're trying to, or, or you, because you're instantiating on the GPU, you're not worrying about the, the, the shape of the matrix? So, I mean, like, there's the map in functional programming. So that's very familiar in Haskell, for instance. And that's the equivalent. Um, so, you, like, you can also, like, map twice or map three times. But, like, saying map three times is a little, like, less fluent than just using the double quotes in the three, right? So I think that might be part of it. It's interesting because um, I never really think that rank polymorphism, which is the fancy term for... Um, the fact that you can just add scalars and vectors and matrices when you're dealing with scalar operations. Like, I've never thought that that was really like a selling feature of the language. It's like it always gets mentioned in the top five things of like, oh, what is it about array languages? They have rank polymorphism. And then I, I just remember one day I was switching from APL to Haskell and I, I had tried to do some sort of a quality operation, uh, which of course you just, you know, whatever equals whatever in APL and it'll work. And then I realized, like, why isn't this working? And I had forgotten that I needed to explicitly map. And uh, it becomes something that, like, you don't think is that nice. Um, but, like, once you really get used to it, it's it's very irritating, especially if you have to, like you said, you have to map a map or map a map a map. Like, that's, like, it it is such a, um, not like a cognitive barrier, but just it's very simple when you look at the, you know, APL or J code that like, you know, one equals one, two, three, four, five, and it returns you a Boolean array. Like, okay, that makes sense. Why should I have to, you know, the, the implicit mapping via rank polymorphism is, is really, really nice. Um, and it's interesting too, that you mentioned the first thing is that the, the tersity, um, cause I never want to say that because I always, the reaction you always get is like, you know, what did, uh, my co-host of one of my other podcasts, he said, what did parentheses ever do to you? And I <laughs> I was, or he said one time too, like, what do you have against like characters? Like it's two characters less, like what's the big deal? But it, it, it like extremely impacts, you know, like, um, being able to, 
uh, commute an operation with like reflex in J or commute in APL, that goes from like one operation a minus to or, or one character which is a minus to two characters. Whereas in eight, in in, um, in Haskell, that you, the spelling of that is you know F L I P flip space parentheses around the minus, and then if you're going to pass that to a mapping operation, there's another set of parentheses that you have to add. And it sounds silly to say that like going from you know one or two characters to ten, like oh that's that's too much. It ruins the flexibility of the language. But I I do think like yeah. you know it it has an impact that's like non-trivial. And anyways, I just found it interesting. That was like the first thing that you said. And I always want to say that, but there's a part of me that says, no, 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 like you shouldn't say that, Connor, because then people just, it's easy for them to, to make fun of you. <laughs> but it's not the ones, it's kind of when you show, show the example of like using one character to commute the arguments versus flip and parentheses and so on, but it's the constant doing more and more and more. The, the important part of your, of your algorithm might be a few characters and it just drowns in, in noise, in MEP parentheses and dots noise everywhere i lose my i lose track of what i'm doing when i try to write javascript i want to i want to have two lists and i just want to add the the elements from one list to the elements of the, the corresponding element other list i can't even use a map for that right because it don't it only map over one array so I have to have to do a map with an with an iterator and use that to index into the other array. It's and nasty globals everywhere. I definitely think that has value. It's not it's not the brevity as such. It's the lack of noise. Well, and I'm a really undisciplined programmer. So for me, it's that brevity means if something's not working the way I want, I go in and change one character, and now it is, or now it's working in a different way. And I'm not having to change a whole list of things. I'm just changing one thing. Okay, now I know what I got. And, and uh, it just speeds up the process that much more. And for my style, which is, as I said, very undisciplined, I'm just pl literally playing. Um, it, 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 if, if I had a, a more verbose language, it would be really hard for me to have the same kind of feedback loop that's so quick. Then there's the fun of it, of course, making lots of commits, each of which is a single character changed. And then with long comments as to what all the features just, just had uh, added, right? I mean, I think it's like a, the whole like APL way works together and it's like, I don't know if it's like a, a cult thing or just like off in its own direction, but like, you know, you're in a REPL, you don't want to like type more than like a hundred characters per line. If your function definition is like 200 characters, suddenly that's a problem. Um, so I think that's part of it, or like, you know, depending on the tool, right? Like regular expressions are terse, but if you're searching for something in bash, you want something terse. You don't want something verbose because it's just one line, right? So um, I think it's like the REPL is good. You get to throw away your code. It's not about like maintenance or anything. It's just about like you get the result and that's part of exploratory programming. And I think I don't know. I, there, there are other styles, right? Like, you wouldn't want your memory allocator to be like a throwaway sort of code, but that doesn't mean that like the way C programmers work is what you need to do for like scientific programming. I don't know. I also think, I guess, like with numbers, it's easier to check yourself in like sophisticated ways, right? Like if you have, like, okay, I'm going to compute the cumulative distributive function 
distribution function for like a normal distribution, for instance, right? And then you have your function and you test your output and you know you know what it's supposed to be, right? Like you see, okay, that's 0.84. That's basically exactly right. So if it gives me the exact right answer on several different numbers, it probably means I like wrote my procedure right because there's no way for this math to be this correct. Like, um, so I don't know. I think working with numbers in general is probably easier in any language, but with J, you know, it just it works out. Yeah, it's interesting too that you um you mentioned like when you're when you're in a you know bash terminal or your terminal of choice and you're building up some um expression like how many times do people do the you know the cat of the dollar of a list of files and then pipe it to word count to get how many word counts are you like it's, there's actually an interesting analog there. Like everyone's fine with LS and like TR for replace and cat for opening files, like and all these short expressions so that you can build <laughs> something up that's very terse but does a lot um, because like it is empowering, empowering when you're in a terminal to be able to very quickly, you know, get some information. And I've actually thought that like APL would be like an amazing fit because so many times um, now like I usually have a, a ride um, sort of editor open in the background and I'll use it for like little calculate anything. I, anytime I need to do like a calculator or a calculator plus plus uh, sort of calculation, like literally the other day I was, I was trying, I had a string of um, the characters that are possible um, to be used in a binary uh, message in small talk, which is very random, but like it had a bunch of unnecessary dollar signs and spaces. So I just took that as a string and did without uh, which I, I think that has an equivalent in um, in J. And then you can basically just, uh, you know, on the right, put space and dollar sign. And very quickly, it removed everything. And I was just like, it's like, it's basically like when you open up the calculator on whatever your operating system of choice. But it's like, it's a calculator plus plus because you can do things with lists and, and matrices. And uh, it's interesting. I like never thought of that really when, when you would just said, oh, like people are okay doing things on, on a, in a terminal. Because, like, no one has a problem with that. Well, I guess maybe there's some people that like to use a mouse, but... Um... It must be, like, familiarity, I guess. I don't know. I think some of the J stuff, like, forks is, like, a little strange, stranger. But I think being terse in general is definitely, like, a good thing. And, yeah, you know, th there are a lot of built-ins that you rely on, I guess. Like, if you want to, like, compute the seven-day sliding average of some vector, like you can do that super easy um, in J. I think there's basically a built-in for it. It's like dyadic infix or something. That's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah? Yep. Yeah, there's definitely certain things. Um, and maybe that's that's an interesting question to ask. Like uh, for your different projects or, you know, when you're just playing around, is there times when you're reaching for, seeing as you have such a, a toolbox of languages, you know, from, from Haskell to Futhark to Idris to J to ATS to the ones I haven't even heard of, um, like, how do you go about choosing which language you're reaching for uh, when you're trying to solve a problem? I guess I use J or something like it for most like data processing. Like if I have a CSV, then I want to use a vector language often. Haskell um, is my default just because I know the most. Uh, but I actually was like working on this like a speculative like text filtering um, program. And it's in many ways different from like J or an APL, but uh, I really did like it has a little language. You can type in expressions, 
and I did take inspiration from like terse symbols and characters, right? So like there's a deduplication, there's like a length um, operator. So I think that sort of style uh, has uh, stayed with me. I don't know. Sometimes I end up thinking like, I wish I could make another language, which a lot of work and might cause future problems, but you know, that's where I'm at recently, I think. So what's in your ideal language? I don't think I have like an ideal. I think Haskell's still pretty comfortable. I don't know if I'd be capable of like making something else to move away from that, but like ATS has like linear types. It's good for manipulating memory. Um, I think a big one like would just be whether it's a text filtering um, like APL on the command line where you like pipe in something and pipe out APL output. I don't know. That would be a nice. I don't know if it would be APL or like J or some derivative, but I think that would be a nice thing. A lot of people would. Well, people who are already enthusiastic would perhaps want it. I don't know. Yeah, the idea of an array language. And we went for the one for the command line, you, um, with the idea that would be a little bit more uh, like, I don't want to say first class support for uh, text processing, but um, sort of, yeah. I think somebody made such a thing. Um, yeah, applet, I think was that the one? Uh, yeah. It's it describes itself as being like a specialized utility along the lines of awk and sed, but for array processing rather than text yeah. to stream processing. Um, and so it uses ASCII glyphs in order to have like super low overhead, and you can just type it on the command line to filter things when you aren't prepping for text, but you want to extract some data from something on the command line. That would actually be yeah, like an interesting. Uh, sort of toy project is basically like a K dialect, but specifically for the command line where, where every symbol is a single character. And uh, although you can already get a lot done, like I actually don't know set and awk very well. Um, and I've heard awk is actually a, a really, yeah. really nice language. Um, but yeah, that'd be an interesting, an interesting project. Not sure. I mean, I think for the moment, I still have things where I'm like, I wish this were better. Start working on it. Um, there are times when I'm like working in Haskell and I'm like, you know, these dependent types are not as good as Idris. So that's just, I don't know, boring, frustrating. Uh, but opportunities to like do more, I don't know. I think ATS is like also a big, it's, it's more academic research than like hobbyist. Uh, that's like a definitely a big gap. It's like, there's nothing to like manipulate pointers and arrays of bytes. I don't know. It's interesting too that you seem to have uh, you're you're both operating intellectually or like mentally at like the very high level of like J, but then also at the very low level of C languages and uh, you know memory allocation and memory management. Um, where does that come from? Because usually, like I think people like to choose. Um, like I accidentally ended up at the C plus plus level, um, but I like I think mentally I I prefer being at the APL level where, you know, there's some sort of, you know, GC or, or, you know, automatic reference counting, or, you know, um, there's all the different flavors. 
I don't really need to think about it. And my my ideal is like if I can just get some GPU language that is blazingly fast and like a little bit of allocation is not a big deal, then who cares, right? Um, but like, so yeah, yeah you, you you seem to think at both levels. Did that just come from um, your studies or, or, or courses or? I'm trying to think. I think I do on some level prefer the higher level, but um, I guess, I mean, there's two things, right? There's like the K, K does something with memory mapping which I think is very impressive. And they end up getting much better like performance than um, the R people with their data tables. Um, and then I think there's like a trend in programming languages about thinking about like, rather than thinking about languages, thinking about like, what are the implementation algorithms that let you do X, Y, Z. And I think interestingly, there's a lot of stuff on like compiler backends, which is, not as well researched, right? Like people will talk about type systems and type systems and type systems, but there's not as much, or maybe this is just as older, right? About like explaining like how register allocation, you know, changes the programmer experience, things like that, right? Or like, I guess with K, how memory mapping makes the database so fast. It's like faster than any other CPU database. And yet for some reason, you know, people are uh, not always imitating it. Have you have you have you got any feelings, Vanessa, about why these languages aren't quite as popular? I think I said I read something you'd written a number of years ago, something to the effect that language um, well constructed and effective languages are not necessarily the most popular ones, and quite often aren't. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, I think with J. Comparing it to Haskell, I think one of the big things is the CFFI. And I mean, that's, I think that's the same with like Lisp and Smalltalk, which get brought up as examples. It's like, does it matter if you're a good language? The thing that C does, which it does better than any of the other language is it, you know, shuffles around bytes. And because it shuffles around bytes, you can call it from any language. You can, you know, export your functions with the C ABI. Um, and I think that's like a very difficult thing. It's not just like exporting your functions in the C way, but it's like, if you want to use J inside Haskell, it's just difficult. Or if you want to use like J within Python, how do you like bring to Python like forks and rank? And like, you have to be able to export your ideas in some useful way. And I think, you know, like K found its uh, niche, right? And now they're just like, you know, make a bunch of money. They have some happy customers. Um, but I think, yeah, like when you compare it to C or like Haskell, Haskell has good uh, FFI, a lot of like weird sophisticated stuff they have to do. But yeah, I think the like lack of communication between languages is a big one just because people want to do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the huge reasons why Python is so popular because its FFI story is so, so good. Like, I've always been curious is that, like, Python's older than Java. Like, py py people think of Python as this sort of, oh, it's younger language. Like, Python, Python is not a young language. And it had, similar to Haskell, actually, it has a similar story in that it had, like, created right around 1990 and had this kind of slow burn and got more and more popular as time went on. Sort of like Haskell did it in spite of like they didn't their whole thing didn't Simon Peyton Jones say like you know we don't want to be successful because then we got to support people or something like that um 
Oh, it's like a, this is like a famous one. It's not like avoid success at all costs. It's avoid success at all costs, right? So it's like less uh, cute, I think, but that's okay. Like the ideas do not like, you know, I mean, Java is like popular, but it's, they grew a lot. You know, Haskell grew more slowly and they like made more principled decisions. You know, it's better to get foundational decisions right than to like build your community by just like putting something out there, which I think did work out pretty well for Haskell. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely true. There's definitely been some languages that I can think of a couple off the top of my head that it's not clear that that decision um, destroyed the success of the language, but definitely it hindered companies' ability. Like the language that I'm thinking that comes to mind is the D language. Um, like early on, it couldn't make up its mind between um, coming, like shipping with a GC or not shipping with a GC. So like, I don't even know the full story. I just know at one point it, it had one, and then at one point it didn't have one. And that led to like there being two different versions of the standard library, one that was sort of backed by GC stuff and that one that wasn't. And um, it was just like having toggling on that decision. Um, there were definitely some companies that used it and were super, <clears throat> super, super happy. But uh, others that are trying to upgrade from C++, if they hear like, oh, they haven't made their mind up about GC or no GC, um, that's going to be a, a big thing. Um, but yeah, Python, Haskell, they both sort of slowly got popular. And I've always sort of been curious on like, you know, I can see why Haskell got popular. Um, because like you said, they were really making, uh, taking their time, getting the important decisions right. But Python, um, I think Python has like a really great ecosystem, but like that ecosystem wasn't always there. Um, which is why I've sort of, you know, I've heard some people say, oh, it's just the FFI. Like that's, it's one of the best languages. Um, for doing that. I'm not sure if, if you have thoughts on, on why Python is, is so much more successful than other languages out there. I think I've read something about like Numpy. Numpy is like the API that scientists use. And I'm not sure like one, I think they're just like going to be stuck in their ways for like at least a few decades. Um, but I, I think Numpy was inspired by Jay, right? So that makes sense. But then at a certain point, it's like Jay has like numpy support. I think presumably K does too. Like every single bit of scientific code is in numpy. Sometimes it'll be like in pandas too. So it's just, uh, I think partly momentum. I think numpy is like not bad for the CPU, but uh, yeah, like at, the, at, that, at this point, numpy is like the API rather than like C almost for scientific computing. Yeah, and it's, I think momentum is a huge thing. Like, you know, I, I work for NVIDIA and a part of our strategy right now, like the team that I work for is on a team that basically builds a GPU accelerated version of Pandas. And there's another team at NVIDIA that is also working on basically a GPU accelerated version of Num, uh, NumPy or, or NumPy, I'm not sure how it's how it's pronounced. Uh, um, and uh, like, I would love to like, let's just, start from scratch and, and do something like shiny, but there's, it's a lot easier to convince, um, you know, corporate management that like, Hey, there's already X million people using this API, or this library. If we go do this with it, you know, we can get them, you know, buying our hardware. Uh, that's a way easier sell than like, let's start from scratch and convince people that like our way is better or like not even from scratch that like this language we have from the nineties or the sixties, uh, you know, whichever one you want. Um, that like this is the direction we should go in because if people are already using something, it's 
it's a way easier sell, which is just, I guess, the way that corporate America works. Or I shouldn't say America. It's the way the world works, yeah. It's the way the world works, really, because, yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's just any anybody doing any kind of performance, if you do it to a small audience, it's going to take a while to catch on. If you hit a mainstream audience, you're going to make a big bang. Um, and the money is with the mainstream audience. It's with the fat part of the curve. So I wonder if we should, because I, I mentioned at the top of the episode that you have sort of a plethora of projects, and I think you've alluded to a, a couple of them. Um, I think one of them was this, I'm not sure if it was one of the projects you have listed, but the speculative, speculative uh, was it string processing or string filtering? Um, do you maybe want to talk about uh, whichever are your favorite projects? Because it looks like you have a ton of really, really cool ones. Um that like I would encourage. We'll we'll definitely link this. It's it's. I think your website is vm uh, or vmichael.com. And then if you go to the portfolio, uh, there's a huge section on programming that has uh, a, a lot of it's open source because you just have it listed on GitHub. So you have stuff in J, Futhark. Um, do you maybe want to talk us through uh, uh, a couple of your favorite ones and and maybe some that our listeners might find interesting? Um, so I guess I've got well the two recent. I guess bigger ones. One is Jacinda, which is like this um, text processing language, partly inspired by APL and such, which uh, trying to be terse with syntax. Um, try to think, Foozark, I've got a nice little um, image processing library. So I think a bunch of that is uh, working and that's pretty fun. It's just like a, showing that you can just like literally just run your code on a GPU and it's faster than uh, sci-fi, which um, I don't know, I guess speaks to Python and like where things could go. Um, I have a, like a stack based language. I don't know if that's a, that's another weird one. I don't know if you've ever used like a joy or factor, but um, this one is called Kemp and it's a, uh, well, it's a toy compiler. I don't think the language is great, but the whole world of, um, what is it? Like stack-based languages is pretty cool. Uh, it's um, another area where like, there's not necessarily le lexical scoping. I think, Jay, you sometimes want lexical scoping, but sometimes you can do with forks. So this is like a, I don't think it's a, a smaller world. Well, I think, I guess Stackbase came a little bit after, but also like um, APL or J has developed sort of in its own way, so. Interesting. I So I um, another term for the Stackbase is concatenative languages. And I think I first heard of concatenative languages when listening to Functional Geekery back in 2018. Um, and yeah, so fourth was like the the OG uh, stack based language, and then yeah, uh, Factor Joy. You've mentioned that Mirth was so. First of all, I had no idea you. So we we have is uh, I guess not necessarily. Who else maybe um, was a program language creator that we've had on in the past? Because we, uh, I mean, we've had implementers, but not necessarily creators. I think from our past. Marshall. Guesses. Marshall. Oh yeah, yeah. What am I talking about? Um, uh, I, I don't have a full memorized uh, uh, list in my head, but uh, that's super awesome that you created a, a programming language. So yeah, tell us. Um, and I've only I've watched maybe three or four 
um, sort of online talks, uh, one about fourth, one about factor. Um, so I know a little bit, and I've maybe typed a couple lines of code in in, in one or the other. Um, but yeah, t- tell us a little bit more maybe about concatenative languages in general, and also Kemp. This is super cool. Um, so Kemp, I think it ends up being a very good exercise for like writing compilers. Um, I've actually, I don't know, maybe, you know, like teachers will want to use some such example. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with like some types. I guess that's like one of the things that uh, definitely good. Not always easy to get right with array languages, but um, I think J and APL don't have that. There's a really like weird um, way that like some types and pattern matching work in concatenative languages, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, I don't think I'm the first to find that, but uh, it's pretty cool. Um, trying to think. Yeah, basically there's like no binding or names aside from like calling other functions. So everything is sort of the same. It's uh, sort of funny. You're like pushing things onto the stack, popping them off, which is definitely familiar to, I guess, like fourth programmers. Um, Some people might have used reverse Polish notation on on HP calculators, same kind of thing. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the manual right now, and it's um, yeah similar. I find it interesting that, um, and I've actually, I, I have to we have to talk to Marshall about this because I'm curious because I know he looked into concatenative languages at one point as well, and his was actually the first um, array language that in the documentation did I ever find the word combinator uh, from combinatory logic. Like he actually refers to. Uh, the the a set of I guess he doesn't call them adverbs he calls them modifiers but what are adverbs in um, J and APL um, he actually referred to them as combinators and uh, yeah it's it's interesting because in in your docs it mentions dupe and swap which they don't exactly map to but uh, they are functionally equivalent to uh, sort of um, the reflex in J and uh, Passive, or I can't. I can never remember because they have such odd names. Reflex reflexive, passive or like yeah. reflexive. One of them does, yeah, commute and self or whatever APL and BQN call them are are much understandable names from my from my point of view. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's interesting that the overlap in that kind of um, like function application manipulation in both concatenative languages and array languages, um, and also Haskell. Um, Haskell has. Not very good uniform support. I actually have that in a, in a paper that I'm trying to get published is that they have all these combinators, but they're scattered across different libraries like control.applicative and control.monad. And um, one of them is in one called data.composition. Um, have, have you ever looked at Jelly? Has anybody here ever looked at Jelly? Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not, not the food item, the programming language. I only know of this because uh, Marshall mentioned it to uh, me on that email that you were also on when when he when I I said oh Marshall's created the two most recent array languages and Marshall said oh that's not true uh, Jelly and uh, Jelly is if you think J and APL yeah if you think J and APL are weird well you haven't heard of Jelly yet um, also if you th- if you think APL and J are terse. <laughs> you haven't seen Jelly, um, but but Jelly is interesting because 
it very it means very much inspired by J. And and in fact, in some in some things, like a classic thing, plus slash is for summation, just like in any good APL will respect for itself. Um but and it's it doesn't have the ambivalence of primitives. So every function is either uh, monadic or dyadic, or nilatic. Uh, so then it behaves like an array. And that means, and every and every function definition is tacit. So it's all using a type of trains, not the APLJ three triple trains uh, forks. But the interesting thing is it very much feels like it's concatenative, stack-based. Many people even get that wrong idea about it because it doesn't use any parentheses. You can just string, think, think of it as like the K style, um, K style tested function. So it's just lots of atops, just apply a function, apply a function, apply a function. But because the functions are fixed uh, valence, then it, it can consume arguments. If you have an, a dyadic function, it must consume one more argument. And, and if there's a monadic function, it consumes one argument. In that sense, it's kind of like the stack-based thing, but it really isn't. And it does use higher order functions uh, to combine things. Um, it's really fascinating. We, should, we could get Dennis, the author of it, to come visit, but... We should, we should note though, for the listener that is not staring at the, the GitHub necessarily uh, docs page is that, uh, although that all sounds very, very cool, the the character set that is used for this language is like capital A, capital A with a dot over it, capital A with a dot below it, capital A with a dot. I don't, I don't even know, but like the the deltas, the visual deltas between these characters are in many cases uh, very subtle. And like the, I've seen the Hello World, um, and it's <laughs> it looks like you know you've tried to print something. And like there was a printer error, and it just ended up printing some noise. Okay, to be fair, it. that's a golfed one, <laughs> meaning as short as possible. Jelly has a built-in string compression and de decompression, so it doesn't ex "hello world" doesn't spell out "hello world." It just looks up in the dictionary the word for whichever number is the word "hello." Uh, why would you? Why? Why would? Because isn't that at the? Isn't that at the top of the documentation? Like it's what. <laughs> It's what's shown as the hell yeah, world. They should show. It's they... a golfing language. It's intended to be as short as possible. But but to be fair, the character set is all typable on a U.S. international lay layout, so it's actually easier to to get to typing it properly than say APL is or BQN is. It doesn't require a specialized keyboard. Every computer has access to, or in every operating system platform has access to the U.S. international layout. So it does have some some merit in that. It tries to use mnemonic names for things. It's not so bad. Sometimes I can see, uh, can see Jellycone and understand a little bit. <laughs> and, and I think you have to be careful about saying that a, a language looks like line noise because a lot of people <laughs> claim that's what our languages look like. <laughs> <laughs> Who are we to speak? <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially Jay. Jay yeah, but like I love it. Just held down shift and was leaning on the number row in the keyboard. That's, that's true. The Array Language Podcast uh, calling other language. Wow, well, I mean, uh, you know, this is uh, it's uh, we. That's yeah, true. I should take that back. You know, we should. Uh, we're all under the same umbrella. Let's let's. If we're being honest with ourselves, um, you can write readable anything and unreadable anything. I think. Are within some limits. Just look at Arthur Whitney's C code. Is that readable? Mm -hmm. I think he just writes like that. I don't think it's like a so. intentionally obfuscated. Yeah. <laughs>
He does he no, he doesn't try to obfuscate, he tries to not sprawl. What conversation was I in the other day when the J in Cannabulum came up? And uh, I think it was the Denver C meetup uh, either one or two Thursdays ago. And I showed the I shared my screen and showed it. And I was like my I started off by being like, you know, I initially thought that this was absolute like line noise, but if you actually because I think they, they, someone made a joke about using uh, macros in C and then just like redefining everything to one letter. And I was like, well, hold my beer. Uh, this is actually a thing. And uh, I went from like sort of joking about it to being like, also, though, if you like quickly, you know, if you know that V1 and V2 are just monadic and dyadic verbs and that do is a loop, you can actually scroll down and see the definition of iota. And like, it's not immediately obvious what it's doing, um, but... It's it's not like also as impenetrable as as you'd think. Like if you just take two seconds to to like familiarize yourself with like the four macros at the top, or you know four of the whatever tenor at the top, and uh, yeah, it's it's you know it's it's very easy to say that something looks hard to read um, when you have zero familiarity with it, and then as as soon as you take a little bit of time, it's like actually this isn't as as bad as as one might think. If you think of it as maybe a different language then you know it's it's clearly not classical c it's a kind of dsl that uses a bunch of macros and once you know those macros it still looks a bit odd but i mean but Kanye, you can't say that right it's perfectly normal c the fact that the world at large doesn't write c like that it's not nobody altered the language to be able to write it like that it's just c it's just valid c I mean, when I say classical, yeah, yeah, Vanessa just sort of went like this with her hand. It's uh, people don't, you know, it's like uh, 90 plus percent of folks are writing sort of a, in a certain style. And um, I don't think I don't think relying on macros to create a DSL like I, I think that's I agree. Totally valid way to write C. I think when I, my my quote unquote classical is just that that's not how most folks in fact, like in C++ macros, they get used in cases where like there's no other option. But like a part of the evolution of C++ has been to try and add things that basically make the need for macros uh, disappear. And so like the goal is, is at some point C++ 26 or 29 is hopefully going to get reflection. And then that should, I mean, there's some people that uh, theorize that it'll never be possible to get rid of the macro um, because it is just so powerful, I mean, to a fault. But, but uh, you can say this in any language, or at least language that's under development. For, for many, many years, it was perfectly normal in APL to create character vectors that were APL expressions and then uh, compress them with a condition, so one or zero, and then execute them. So that's a kind of if statement. Conditionally execute this code that you have built up or not. In today, when uh, at least common popular APLs have control structures and there's some operators to choose what to do, um, then that's looked down upon. But you can't come and say it's invalid APL. It's 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 not normal APL. <laughs> no, it's not. It's it, well, it was normal APL, right? And who is to dictate what's what's the right way of doing things? It's not. And some people might be uncomfortable with it. But then again, I can recognize the programming styles in APL of 
of my colleagues. For somebody who doesn't know APL, they look at it and it's all garble, characters they don't know that know how to pronounce. But I can make sense of some of it because I do APL all the time. And some of that that I see, I don't like. It's perfectly valid APL. I just don't like it. Well, it's a, this is kind of a philosophical, and I'm, I'm interested maybe to, to get Vanessa's thoughts because you're primarily a Haskell programmer. It's this, uh, the question of, you know, what makes a programming language a functional language? Because, you know, some, some languages classically, you know, Haskell, OCaml, but then there are certain languages, like you could mention Rust or um, Swift, that you can code functionally in them. And there's a lot of people that do, and I think there's even like a functional Swift conference but a lot of people, if you call that language functional, they say, oh, no, no, it's not a, like, you know, do you have thoughts on like, what, what is it that makes a, a language fall into like one paradigm or another, or, or sort of by extension, like what is classical or non-classical? I don't I think APL is like its own sort of like alt functional, like they're definitely functional languages. They have adverbs where you would say like higher order functions and that was like, independently invented, maybe it was invented first. Um, I think the difference with like Haskell or APL is like, at least in J, you can like use indexing, right? So like you can grade an array and you can use that result to index into the array and then you have like a sorted array. Um, I don't think anyone who wasn't an array programmer would like think about it like that. Um, it's a difficult thing too. Like, I mean, part of like what makes APL viable or what makes J viable is like the reference counting so that you can modify in place and all of these like efficiency things. Um, so like if you write um, recursive code in certain cases with like standard NML, then it gets compiled to a bunch of jumps the same way, you know, like a for loop would in another language because of register targeting so it ends up being like very difficult and I don't think anyone's familiar with like compiler internals, but like when you have Haskell, it's compiled with GHC and like a certain functional style becomes viable. If you do that in like Swift or Rust, I don't know if that happens, but I'm also like not familiar. Like you need to know the compiler internals. So I think like, you know, immutable data structures and functional programming, it's just like it's a super hard to get it perfectly on the nose. I'm, I'm going to jump in and ask the Stephen Taylor question. And Stephen's under the weather today. He just let us know that he wasn't going to be part of the panel. But my question is, how does uh, the array programming languages change the way you think about the way you structure your programming? You know, so well, I went into this with like uh, Chris Double's, um, I guess, like a slides presentation. Um, I think I had written off dynamic typed languages and like, okay, well, that's like sort of wrong and outdated. And then I went to see it and I was like, okay, like this actually works approximately fine. And like, there's certain things that are missing, but like you can totally program in this. Um, I think exploratory programming just doesn't get enough like uh, attention. I think programmers are all like in their world. And I think scientists and other people are in another one. Um, trying to think. I think there's just like a lot of like different wisdom and it ends up working together, right? Like other people like to like name their stuff verbosely and like you split it out into three definitions and in J it's just like one line. And 
it's all symbols and all of those decisions like if you had decided to just like write everything together in haskell that's a bad decision or if you like decide to um like split things out i guess that's a good decision and then in j you know it works differently right like everything together and you sort of have a sensible way to program even though like all of your individual habits are basically totally opposed to the mainstream, right? So you're writing terse code, like you don't bother to like factor it out, you just write it in line and throw it away, I guess. That reminds me of the, uh, the Aaron Chu um, talk. I'm not sure if you've seen it where he has sort of like eight, 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 a list of eight things that are sort of in, in mainstream versus like an APL and like one of them's one of them is libraries versus idioms that in like in mainstream languages you have libraries for all these little string utilities etc cetera, etc cetera. but he said it's more common in apl that like you just have some little three or four uh character expression that does that and like do you do you need to name that split because split is more characters than like the spelling out of the expression so it just becomes like a kind of better bread and butter thing that you start to learn these expressions that are spellable in fewer characters than it would actually take to name the thing. Um, which is like you said, it's, it's very antithetical to the, the, you know, what we learn in school or what we learn on the day job is that, Oh, it's all about refactoring and a level of indirection. And his whole thing is like, no, 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 no indirection. Like you, you can just write it in line and it'll, if you learn to read it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's like opportunity, like you have get for C programmers and then it's like, in J world, it's like, do you even need like version control? You can just like memorize it and then type it in every single time, which seems just like totally absurd and backwards, but it's actually not even that bad. And um, I think the way the J interpreter does like idioms is pretty cool, like telling you this is fast explicitly, right? So um, then you have like underlying implementation, which you know is probably going to be sensible, which I think is better than like, I don't know, in Haskell world, they have their own stuff, but like being able to read the manual and say like, if you write your code like this, it will be efficient. I think that's something more languages should do because, you know, just not part of their system, I guess. Yeah. It's, it sounds, even when you just said like memorize it and rewrite it, like my first thought, my gut reaction was like, well, like that's Really? Like you have to rewrite your program from Scratch's <laughs> time. But then I just remembered that it's like ten letters, yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> well, even when it's more, um, Aaron Aaron Shu gave a talk at the most recent functional conf where he it's called like three sort of DSLs or uh, his code it's basically him showing the three different ways that he implemented his code defunds compiler um using sort of three different techniques. And he's actually rewritten each one of those techniques like you know a couple different times so he's up there basically saying you know because my compiler it's it's not a trivial amount of stuff but it's also not like it's not an overwhelming you know uh you know hundred thousand or two hundred thousand line code base i have the ability to play around and re-implement it a couple different ways and uh that exactly lines up with what you just said like you you don't need a version control system for (laughs) for something that you can fit on you know uh half a screen or or one line I think it's like a, I don't know, like more respectful to the user in some ways, like other programming languages, you're trying to be like really hard against errors, handle errors like explicitly. And then I think in J APL, it's more like about transparency, right? Like 
if you write a mean function to like the say, you have like some verbs to say the seven day sliding mean, and it has some implementation. And like, if your user calls it wrong, then like, maybe that's on them. And like, you can just see the like four or five letters anyways. So I don't know, it's, it's a different um, approach, I think. Less like, you know, condescending maybe. <laughs> It's interesting because I think both in J and APL, and, and uh, people can correct me if I'm wrong, like the the code that's shipped in the different um, libraries, at least I know this is the case for uh, Dialog APL, the whatever defunds, um, like you can, all that code you can look at, like you can read, um, which is similar to like the Smalltalk system where you can, you know, you can step in and look at sort of the code where a lot of the times, depending on which language you're debugging through, that's definitely not possible. So, Wait, but so yeah, really? it's another interesting point that like when you can look at the... Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize. <laughs> I just, I just. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times when you're, yeah, when you're dispatching to some, you know, binary, like you don't, you don't necessarily have the source with that. So. Ah, uh, uh, because of that, right? But that's that's a, that's more an artifact of it being compiled, right? And that you can't just step into it. Like if you had something that's entirely uh, interpreted, any website, you stop it in the middle, you inspect the JavaScript, you can trace through it unless it's been obfuscated. But. The, yeah, sometimes the problem is is that with a lot of Python code, it is interpreted, but then it's like the pandas and numpy it's stuff. Calling to it's basically, <laughs> it's exactly so it is quote unquote interpreted, but the back end is some compiled C code or some compiled C plus plus code. So you can you can debug down to a certain point, but then usually the point you actually want to get to, it's like oh now now we okay, don't but have the, access then to that. we always have that at some point, right? I I work with with a version of dialog APL that's going to come out and there are sometimes bugs in, in that has gone into the into a pre-release version. And and at some point I get to like this primitive doesn't seem to behave properly. I, I give it some sample arguments. I can't step further into it. Right. At this point it's kind of calls into a C library, which is the interpreter itself. So you're always hitting that. But I do think like I was looking at like SciPy code in Python. And they tend to have like just I guess it's like a different attitude, right? It's like you I mean they comment it heavily, they like check to make sure that like if you pass in a zero length vector, they won't compute the average of that. They'll tell you that like it has zero length. And the thing is, like one, Python's more verbose because it has like four loops, but then just like having the if check, it makes the whole thing so much denser and harder to follow. I think. You know, if you have in J, you you don't even need an average function. But if you did, and someone passed in a zero length array, then it's like, okay, well, that's on you, right? And it ends up, I think, working better, right? Because then you can actually like see the code that you're using. Python, not so much, just because it's like verbose. It's full of checks. It's full of extensive comments, and I think. I don't know. Maybe that's all right too, but it's definitely different. I, I can see the difference there. Like when you're doing all this for fun APL, then yeah, you just are exploratory. You don't care about checking things. You know what it is you're getting in. And then sometimes I write these utility functions that have to be like totally hardened. Whatever you throw at them, they must behave nicely and not leave the user in, in the middle of my code. And, and a large amount of my code then ends up being just checks and error messages and things like that telling the user this isn't right this isn't right and the actual code that does something is just these tiny little short lines in between all the checks and all the error messages 
So I will say we're getting, I think, probably a little bit close to time, but I definitely want to ask um, a last question, and maybe we'll we'll ask another if, if Bob and, and Adam have one. But um, I, I'm wondering if you have any advice for uh, maybe you know folks that are still in school or younger folks, because um, like I said sort of at the beginning, it's um, I don't think people have done enough what you have managed to very, very successfully do, which is sort of explore different paradigms and different languages and, and not just, you know, the mainstream Java and, and what, like you said, Java, Python and scheme. And I guess scheme is kind of out there nowadays. Um, it was less so, you know, back a couple of decades ago, um, when they were teaching sick everywhere. But, um, it, do you have like advice for, for sort of younger students on like how to, um, I don't know, successfully explore the languages and, and like, what is it, what is it that managed that, you know, enabled you to, uh, sort of, navigate all these different sort of, you know, less mainstream and, and, and build up, you know, get to the point where you're building a concatenative language and in, in, in Haskell and, and all that stuff. I mean, Haskell's in like a funny place now, sort of like calcifying, solidifying, but um, I think having like confidence in good ideas is like a big one, uh, right? Like Haskell, I mean, at the time I was doing it, there were just fewer jobs and now there are, you know, a reasonable number of jobs. People are using OCaml all over the place. Like Bloomberg uses OCaml, uh, Facebook uses OCaml. Um, so I think like having some confidence in good stuff and taste. Um, and I mean, it, it does take like a few years to pan out, but maybe looking, you know, years ahead is a good idea. So then I guess the question is, how do you develop that? I mean, because everyone here is going to agree that you've got great taste in programming <laughs> languages. Um, but yeah, how does one cultivate that uh, that sense of taste? Because I definitely, I did not have that early on. I was just like, I don't know, semicolons and braces seems good to me. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I haven't done C++. I've used C. Um, I guess part of it was like exposure, just like doing Python, doing Haskell and deciding like, you know, maybe Haskell is doing this like the sensible way. Um, not 100% sure. I guess like digging at foundations can work. I'm not sure like how I wasn't like super aware of what was good in Haskell at the beginning, but uh, it was a weird one. It was like a little bit of hype, but you know, looking for like academic and difficult stuff can be fun. So that's good too. Yeah. So it sounds like, sounds like the advice is to just explore and um, you know, when you think you see a good idea, uh, don't necessarily write it off just because it's in a language that, you know, isn't a top 10 on whatever your, your TIOB or, or what there's like 16 different, you know, programming link, uh, language rankings. And, um, uh, depending on which one you look at, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's somewhat a bit of variety, but you know, Python and JavaScript are always, are always close to the top. So any last questions from Bob and, and Adam? All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Vanessa, for taking your time to hang out with us today. This was a blast from, I mean, I'm not, I can't speak for bottom Adam, but, uh, I always love nerding out on sort of different languages. And, um, I feel like we're definitely going to be having you back at some point in the future because at the rate that you are pumping out projects, I mean, I won't be surprised if some uh, new programming language in the future is, uh, and we're like, Oh, what's this? And then we're going to see your name attached to it because it sounds like you're um, constantly exploring stuff and have already been thinking about a potentially, you know, ideal language that uh, may or may not come to fruition. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Good to meet you. All right. Thanks so much for coming on.
And with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.